Hello and welcome to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now, in a world of unusual films, is there a more unlikely movie series than Machete? It started life as a fake trailer for Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse project, but three years later, that fictional film became a reality with the release of Machete. And if that wasn't improbable enough, that was followed in 2013 with a sequel and the subject of this show, Machete Kills. Joining me to discuss the film is a man who has been X-rated for cigarette use, prolonged sexual content, profane language and space violence. It's Nick Rehack from French Tank Sunday. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Well, how are you? I'm pretty good because we've got a really great helicopter explosion to talk about. So I hope I can uh, rely on you to do this chopper fireball justice. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited to dig into this one because it almost defies the logic of physics and science, and I'm very excited to talk about it. We love the fact that science doesn't get in the way of a good exploding helicopter on this podcast. <laughs> that is very true. I feel like every helicopter explosion just does not follow the rules of science. And long may that continue. But before we take a look at Machete Kills, I want to get you uh, warmed up and find out if you've seen anything interesting lately. So uh, what have you got to wow me with, Nick? Well, recently uh, I saw the bio-drama biopic Miles Ahead. Don Cheadle wrote, direct, and starred in a film-slash-vignette about the life of Miles Davis. And it's interesting because it's not one of those typical biopics where it follows, you know, the humble beginnings to the big breakthrough and all of a sudden he struggles with an addiction or some kind of heartbreaking, you know, something happens. It focuses on just one story. And throughout that story, there are flashbacks to different parts of his life and his upbringing and his career. So what's then the unifying thread then of this biopic, if it's just kind of looking at this isolated moment in time in his life? Uh, you know, what's it trying to, do you think, sort of tell us about Miles Davis as an artist? You know, the more I think about it, the more I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's one of those films where it tells the story. Uh, Ewan McGregor is in it. He is and a reporter from Rolling Stone. He knocks on Miles Davis's door and says, "Hey, Miles, I'm here to do a story on your big comeback." And Miles Davis is like, "Big comeback? What are you talking about?" And he says, "Well, the record studio sent me says that you have a big album coming out. We just want to do a big story." Now, this is a part in Miles Davis's career where he kind of took a break from putting out albums. He's been recording, but he's not releasing them. He's trying to get it just right, like a Brian Wilson kind of way and they follow the story of he needs more money to continue to record and just continue to live so he goes to the studio heads and the studio's like well we need the music and he's like but i'm not ready to give that to you yet and it's just this whole kind of just series of events that seem highly unlikely to the point where i don't even think that this story actually happened but if it did actually happen miles davis is the most badass trumpet player on the face of this planet because there's car chases, there's gunfights, there's just a lot that happens that just does not scream Miles Davis to me. Mm. I read uh, Miles Davis's autobiography a long time ago, so uh, maybe I've forgotten a few details of his life, but I don't remember I don't remember car chases and and gunfights. I mean, uh, you know, being around nightclubs for for many years, I, I I'm sure I can uh, Vaguely recall him getting into a few sort of scrapes along the way, but uh, I don't remember it being sort of like the outtakes of some sort of cop movie. Yeah, there's a scuffle here and there. And, and actually, it really does at some points feel like a buddy cop movie. Davis is the old grizzled veteran. Ewan McGregor's <laughs> the new guy on the force. And they're trying to, in a way, get Miles' music back to him. Uh, so you can continue to work on it. And it just gets really almost surreal because the way they 
dive in and out of or transition in and out of the flashbacks is fascinating it could be he opens a door a certain way and it's all of a sudden boom we're back in you know 50s or 60s what's really cool too is technically each era looks like that era so when it's in the 50s it has very much that glow of like old school hollywood you know what i'm talking about films like casablanca treasure sierra nevada or yes sierra nevada no sierra madre sierra nevada is a drink nick it is (laughs) you can tell where my mind is (laughs) yeah Ocean's Eleven, but those those kind of old school Hollywood movies that have that appeal, have that cool, have that yeah. charm to them. The film kind of dives in and out of that, so it has like a very like late seventies, eighties gritty look, but then it has this really polished, beautiful look too. So just going back to uh, what you were saying about not really being sure of what the kind of point of this film was. So what was your sort of verdict overall? Would you recommend it, or uh, would you say to steer clear of it? I'd recommend it because Don Cheadle is really, really good in this film. Uh, I think he's a solid director. I liked what he did with the film. Musically, it makes me more interested in Miles Davis. I've only ever listened to his album Bitches Brew, and I kind of want to branch out and listen to older stuff as well as some of the later stuff he did. So I would recommend it if you're already a fan of Davis and of jazz, and if you're just curious in general. But if you're like, you know, John Q moviegoer, I, I wouldn't go out of my way to see it. Okay, well, I'm a bit of a Miles Davis fan, so I may well seek it out for a viewing. So uh, thanks for that, Nick. I think it's time to get stuck into Machete Kill. So let's listen to a raspy voiced man deliver a truncated summary of the plot punctuated by fragments of dialogue rendered meaningless by a lack of context. He was trained to kill. all roll up in the war. Then left for dead. I know what they did to your family. And now he's back. Machete. For his most dangerous mission yet. We need you, Machete. There's a revolutionary assault in the bar. He's got a missile aimed at Washington. No, I had his art. I got mine. Machete, go kick some ass. I'll be your handler. You ready for this? Good for calls, texts, tweets. Watch it, they don't tweet. The enemy may have a missile, but we have machete. So Machete Kills came out in 2013. The story begins with a gang of Mexican revolutionaries threatening to nuke the United States. With the fate of the nation at stake, American President Charlie Sheen calls in everyone's favorite oversized knife-wielding Mexican to save the day. Dangling the prize of a U.S. green card before him, because what else would any Mexican want? The Prez hires Treo to infiltrate the gang and stop the plot. But as our crater-faced curmudgeon cuts a steel-edged sway through the villains, he learns that the nuke threat is just a diversion from another, much more deadly conspiracy. The film was once again written and directed by Robert Rodriguez. The cast features a veritable galaxy of stars, including Antonio Banderas, Jessica Alba, Michelle Rodriguez, Walton Goggins, Cuba Gooding Jr., Mel Gibson, and even Lady Gaga. Nick, what do you make of Machete Kills? I wanted to like it. I really did. But there was just some things about it that were just really off. I think the story had a lot of potential, but its execution was a bit of a misfire or a, a misswing if you're wielding a machete. You, uh, you feel the story had a bit of a blunt edge and that it could have been sharper. Ex- exactly. Exactly. It's just There's just something about it where it just felt a little 
a little shallow, and I don't know if it's like all the actors together made it feel shallow or if it was one performance in particular that stood out, but just something was just off about this movie. No, I'm in a kind of similar uh, boat to yourself because it kind of has the appearance of a good film, and there's a lot of sort of stuff in here that I kind of do like. It's got some inventive violence, and there's a cartoonish energy to the action and the acting, but... I kind of came away from it feeling a little bit underwhelmed and just the whole thing was a bit ultimately unsatisfying. And there are a couple of reasons for that, I think. Uh, I did have a bit of a problem with Danny Trejo's as a character in this. He's, you know, here in this leading man role, uh, which is not something he often plays. You know, he's a bit of a blank presence because he plays it all sort of very deadpan. He's a bit Leslie Nielsen-esque here because he plays, you know, just keeps an absolute sort of dead straight face throughout the whole thing and it kind of works but over the course of a film that's pushing two hours it does start to become a little bit sort of one note and I did feel he was a bit of sort of hollow presence at the at the heart of this film and my other problem with this film was I wasn't really sure whether it was a pastiche or a homage or a send-up or is it a parody and kind of is inspired by sort of um, films from sort of time past but I was unsure of whether I was watching something which was just sort of like a not a very good version of what were not very good films to start with. Well, it's interesting you bring up Danny Trejo being hollow, because if you look at the first film, his character, it's all about him. And these other characters, their interactions with him boost him up or make him greater or in some way better and more like intriguing of a character but in this movie they shoehorn in so many more colorful and exciting characters that you start to focus more on them and less on him and i think that's where it loses it's like homage and becomes kind of a parody in a way they're like parodying themselves and i think that hurts the film a little bit because everybody's in on the joke if you look at black dynamite or hobo with a shotgun black dynamite everybody's in on the joke but there's something about it that just works there's just something clicks and they know what's happening hobo with a shotgun yeah they're chewing the scenery but there's also genuine earnest performances and in here you get more of the yeah we're in on the joke wink wink you know this is all supposed to be funny and bad special effects blah 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 but it doesn't come across as earnest and genuine it just doesn't have that feel of oh, this has the same energy as the first one, or oh, this is intriguing, or oh, I want to rewatch this. Because with Machete, like, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it a handful of times, but with this one, I'm, I'm kind of one and done. Yeah, I think you make a couple of really great points there, and I would be inclined to agree with you that this is a film that's sort of falling between two different stools, because both of those movies that you sort of talked about, like Hobo with a Shotgun and Black Dynamite, like I absolutely love Black Dynamite, and I do really like Hobo with a Shotgun, but they are kind of both doing very different things but inspired by some of the sort of same type of cinema and kind of agree with you yeah the machete kills it is trying to do both things but it ends up sort of doing neither not very well and i think that that may well be why both of us sort of came away feeling a bit underwhelmed by this i think it if it, it misses the mark it just falls a little bit short i like what they're doing but something about it just feels off and for me i think it's a little bit of the cgi that does that it's one thing to have bad cgi like bad green screen i can understand that and it can even add to the culty kitschy feel it's supposed to have i understand that but there's some moments like there's some shootouts in a hallway where bullet holes are cgi'd or like you know hunks of wood are flying off and that's also cgi'd or like now with like the blood and stuff like it's just this like maroon almost like a juice stain is on the character (laughs) 
rather than blood, like rather than a squib. Like Tarantino does it like an over the top, very Looney Tune esque squib where like just copious amounts of blood, blood to the point where like there's no way that much blood is in that part of the body. But just to have that, like why couldn't they just spring an extra couple bucks? and do it that way well i guess it probably does boil down to budget because you know robert rodriguez he's making a he's making films basically sort of out of his own pocket he you know he's trying to sort of maintain his own creative freedom and you know he's actually filling a lot of the roles on this film himself so he's writing the script he's doing the music he's producing it he's also the dp on this film as well and you know i guess that he obviously sees using the cgi effects as a way of keeping costs down and and maintaining control over the film but i kind of agree with you that the sort of special effects here do become a little bit irritating and i've kind of mellowed over the use of practical effects over cgi i used to be really against cgi but kind of come around to a view that there's either good special effects or bad special effects but here i think it's with the blood and the explosions that i kind of had a real problem with the use of cgi here there's something about the way fluids move uh whether it's blood or water that if it's not one of these big blockbusters where somebody's spending a lot of time and money on getting the effects right i think that uh sort of at the lower budget end those types of blood cgi always looks really poor unless somebody's put a lot of time and money into it and i think the same with fire and explosions is again for me, it was enough of an annoyance, but if Robert Rodriguez is going to go through all this trouble to self-finance, to write, direct, and, 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 and do the, you know, DP work, and why not just take that extra little bit of effort, just like a squib or two, or just, or do something <laughs> creative, like do something else where, you know, kind of like in, um, earlier this year in Deadpool, there's a scene where, and he pushes the camera away, and the camera like kind of just tilts away, he does his thing, and then the camera comes back. Yeah, do something creative with it. Don't just be like, ah, we'll just, you know, put a digital band aid on it. Explosions and, and fire, I can kind of give that a pass because there's also like safety involved. But everything else, it's just, it's just of enough of an annoyance to be like, come on. Like you could have, you could have tried a little bit harder. You could have tried. Now, one thing I wanted to talk about was Danny Trejo as an action movie hero. So we've got here a guy who's been in a million movies, suddenly thrust into a, a leading role at the ripe old age of 70. And we've seen a lot of older actors move into the action genre in recent years. People like Liam Neeson or people returning to the genre. So sort of grizzled old favourites like uh, Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger. And these type of movies even sort of picked up a, a kind of sub-genre name of their own. So uh, sort of they dubbed the Jerry uh, Action genre. So mm-hmm. uh, I wondered uh, what you thought about these old dudes kicking butt. You know, what is it, Nick, that you think people like so much about seeing these butt-kicking pensioners? I think it's just cool, A, because I'm a big fan of puns, so I'm loving Jerry Action. I think it comes down to nostalgia. Because growing up, we've always seen like Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Sylvester Stallone in, you know, Rambo or Terminator or Rocky. Just these movies where they're just punching the hell out of people. They're not really acting. They're just kind of, you know, knocking heads. And they just continue to do that. And you're like, yeah, you know, growing up, he was doing this. And he's, you know, the old man still got it kind of thing. But when it comes to Liam Neeson, it's just cool. I don't want to say to see that range because there's not – there's not much of a stretch when it comes to action films, 
But like I can remember like when I watched Schindler's List and at the very end, you know, Liam Neeson's giving that big monologue and just, you know, I weep every time. It gets me every time. But then to see him kind of turning around and all of a sudden he's like, you know, throat punching dudes and firing guns. It's like, all right, Liam Neeson, you're a bit of a badass. Like I there's an extra facet to who you are as a person and what you can do as an actor. And I really dig that. Oh, definitely. I think when you get these older actors who are not previously associated with the action genre so sort of Liam Neeson I think is the sort of classic example I think he brings some serious acting chops with it so it gives the characters that he's playing a little bit more gravitas than Mm -hmm. they might otherwise do if it was somebody who is uh, much more familiar to audiences in that sort of genre you know I do think though the the kind of the fact that the aging sort of heroes do make for slightly more interesting characters in these type of movies because you know, I think that with their advancing years, they have an element of vulnerability about them. And I kind of think that for any sort of hero to work, they need that air of vulnerability. If they're invincible, what's the interest in watching somebody who can't be beaten, who's not going to be killed, take on a particular mission? If they've got some sort of flaw, whether it is, um, I don't know, if you're a superhero, whether it's kryptonite, or if you're just a sort of regular guy, but you're kind of getting on in years, like Allah, I don't know, Charles Bronson in the 80s, then it adds an extra sort of element to it about, well, you know, have they got the the kind of the physical resources to uh, meet the challenge that they're being faced with? Yeah, it, it allows you to relate to these characters a little bit better because everybody has like, oh, man, you know, I got that weird back thing or oh, I got that thing with my <laughs> knee. And you're able to go like, well, you know what, if they can do it, like maybe I could do it, too. And there's also just this feeling that it's believable. Like, I, you know, if when you have these superheroes, like you said, you know, like Superman, you know, his big weakness is kryptonite. It doesn't exist. Like, that's not a real thing. So why should it matter to us? But if someone says, like, you know, better look out for bullets, you're right, because bullets can kill people. That's a real thing. That's going to hurt a lot of us. Or, hey, you know, be careful. Just little things like that. It adds to just this believability and this realism factor that I think is just becoming more and more prevalent don't get me wrong i dig fantasy films from time to time but just something that's realistic and something where someone can actually get hurt and there's real stakes because too many movies nowadays are like oh what's gonna happen but then it's always the lesser of the two things that could happen and there's a happy ending so to at least think that there's a greater vulnerability to this character it's it's nice to have that idea like oh maybe something bad's gonna happen you know maybe oh man he's gonna pop his hip and he's gonna have to be in a wheelchair the rest (laughs) Of the film and push him around that way that would i would love to see that like liam neeson you know he gets kicked really hard in the leg and he's got a cast and he's just you know hobbling along with crutches and he's got like a crutch gun or something he shoots people with that's a movie crutch gun oh man <laughs> crutch gun starring alan alda would could you imagine alan alda in a taken style film oh i think yeah i mean we 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 haven't really pushed the boundaries yet of Jerry action. So, you know, like Liam Neeson, he's still, you know, he's a big guy. He's still in some sort of relative shape, but you know, Mm. Alan older, you know, he, he's a guy, you know, couldn't be, you know what? I kind of assume he's, he's got kind of like liberal values. He kind of looks like somebody who's nice to animals. Oh, totally. I don't, I don't think think he's voting Trump anytime soon. Let's put it that way. No, but he's driving, you know, maybe not a Prius, but like a Tesla, like an electric car. He's concerned about the environment. Like he doesn't care who uses what bathrooms. He's he's probably like, oh, the gays want to marry? Let him marry. Who cares? But if someone steps, you know, kidnaps one of his grandchildren, you better look out. Because the crotch gun's coming out. Oh, man, we got to write this movie. Oh, 
I can just imagine it now. Like he tries after the first time, they're like, yeah, whatever, old man. They push him. He trips and falls and just, you know, breaks his hip. And he just, he keeps going. He keeps, oh, I told you to stay down, old man. Like, <laughs> just reuse all these tropes. It would be incredible. Who else would be ripe for this type of, uh, Alan Old is a great choice. I'm, I'm desperately racking my brains now for another kind of well, saintly old pensioner that we could put in, put in a similar type of movie. My mind goes to these actors we already know, like uh, um, Morgan Freeman, but he's done similar things in like Wanted and stuff. And then Michael Caine, but he did Harry Brown, so we know that he's he's got it going on. But you got to get someone from like far out of left field to where you'd be like, what him? Kind of like Rob Reiner. Oh, I was thinking Robert Redford. Ooh, yeah, because he just did that movie where he was all by himself on a boat. Yeah. So he could easily just jump back in. Like, where you been? I was on this boat for a while, but now I'm coming back to kick some. I'm going <laughs> to kill the person that made this boat. <gasps> Did you see that movie? All is lost. Yeah. Okay. How spoilers for anybody that's seen it. How amazing would it be is if all of a sudden he he survives because the ending is very, you know, who knows. Ambiguous. Kind of and which crushed me. And how amazing would it be is he's alive and he's in a hospital. He wakes up and he can remember the symbol on the freighter <laughs> crate that was just floating in the water. And he wants to get back at that ship. And he finds that it's like a huge Chinese syndicate triad that's operating out of like somewhere in India because that's where he was sailing from. Cause I think he was in the Indian ocean in that film. And he's just, he's going after that person that was on that ship. That would be, uh, and, and it could be all is found or lost and found or just something to play on like all is lost to know that it's a continuation of that character we can find out what finally happened to his wife and maybe like these people that also had the ship container also killed his wife why not i like it and i think that what they would be really good because like in all is lost i think robert redford only says one word in that entire film so yeah, i think he says, he that's, yeah. that's that's it <laughs> he shouldn't speak in this sequel either Oh, yeah. His, his mission of vengeance, he should just be carried out in silence. He's like, he's just, there's a lot of scenes where he's on his computer looking up and researching and he prints out pictures and he goes to people and they're like, and I'll be with her. And he just points at the symbol and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And punches the <laughs> out. I'm like, okay, okay, I'll talk. I'll talk. That's the Jade Rabbit. It sails out of here <laughs> every third Saturday of the month. I like it. I think the world is ready for. Hollywood's most arch liberal to be turned into some sort of gun wielding angel of death. I'm ready. I'm already writing this movie down. Well, before uh, you get too tied up into uh, your script there, uh, we should also talk about the cast in this movie because there's a million and one people in this film. So I just wondered who caught your eye either for good reasons or bad. As much as I liked the, I guess, not the main villain, but one of the villains. I can't think of the name off the top of his head. Uh, the guy that's kind of running the cartel. His character is interesting because he's a bad guy, but he also has like split personalities. And he's like many different people at once. And I, I was a little disappointed with him because I feel like they could have fleshed him out more and done more with him. But the one that catches me off the most and the character I want to see the most in a separate film is uh, Walt Goggins' character. 
where he's just this assassin and once he kills someone all of a sudden you know just takes his face off and he's another person altogether like all of a sudden he just becomes Cuba Gooding Jr. and then later in the film by way of uh, Antonio Banderas becomes Lady Gaga I I, want to see that character I want to see more of him I love the way the character spoke I love their demeanor they had like a set of rules like that character is so fascinating to me I want more of him or her or whatever it is in terms of myself, the people I really liked in this were Michelle Rodriguez. I really, I'm a big fan of hers. I kind of think that she's a little bit sort of underappreciated. I think, you know, Hollywood's a bit short, short of badass butt kicking women. And, you know, Michelle Rodriguez is pretty much the sort of only woman really sort of out there doing those kind of type of roles. And I kind of feel like Hollywood doesn't really sort of know how to use her. I mean, apart from the Fast and Furious movies, and she's done a few other things like Machete around it, you know, she doesn't really seem to sort of like get a whole load of acting roles. And I kind of think you know, she could easily get a lot more work, but Hollywood must seem to sort of lack the like, imagination to sort of find those roles for her. I think it's because they don't let her become that big box office draw. They push her, not push her, but they kind of put her in these supporting character roles when really her character is a hundred times stronger. If it was her against Machete, I would say nine out of ten times she's going to beat Machete. She can beat any character in this movie there's just something that about her is just she's strong shouldn't take any from anyone but there's also like a slight vulnerability there so unraveling that vulnerability would make for a fantastic character but this is not kind of movie for that and what did you make of mel gibson in this movie i really liked it <laughs> uh i kind of just wish he would do more like this. He would just be a perfect between like on a scale of Nick Cage to uh, gosh, what Gary Busey, he, just somewhere in there, somewhere in there, just a whole can of crazy. He don't have to worry about any main roles. He's done the lethal weapons. He's done passion. He's done all these movies where he doesn't have to worry about a big paycheck. He can just go in there for fun. So for him to just continue to pick these just very bizarre roles, I would absolutely love for him to become that kind of actor. Well, I think it's the area that he's now sort of stuck in because uh, obviously he's had his much publicized uh, issues, to say the least. And clearly people aren't rushing, going to be rushing to watch a, a Mel Gibson starring vehicle anytime soon. So these type of sort of bringing him in to be a colorful villain, I think that's probably where his, you know, the rest of his career is going to lie. And like, like you say, what, he should go out and have some fun with it. He should take some risks because, you know, he can't really he hasn't got a he hasn't got a public persona to worry about damaging now absolutely and and you have all these actors that are pulling for him like robert downey jr they're like you know give him a chance again yeah give him a chance to be a total psychopath <laughs> he would be an amazing batman villain like any batman villain he could pull it off let him be the riddler in the whatever the next you know creation of that character let him be that or two-faced just let him go off the board and be crazy just absolutely like nick cage in wild at heart crazy just total 100 percent looney tune i would go to any movie and yeah he'll do something offset or you know in the press that's labeled you know he's uh you know crazy or whatever great that just drives up more attention for the film like shia labeouf shia labeouf should start doing like just early just crazy stuff right now because what else has he got going on? So Machete Kills ends with a cheeky trailer for a further sequel, uh, excitingly entitled Machete Kills Again in Space, 
Does that idea send you into orbit with excitement or did it bring you crashing down to Earth? It was weird because when I watched this on demand, they played the trailer for In Space first. And I'm like, okay, why is this happening? I don't get because I hadn't seen uh, Machete Kills again until I, I watched it for the first time for this podcast. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, why are they showing this? And then later they kind of do a Back to the Future 2 and they're like, Machete will return in space. And then, boom, let's show you a little bit of what that may or may not look like. And I was fascinated by the end because the way this plot ends up and the motivations from all these characters and how some of these characters show up again, like Michelle Rodriguez, all of a sudden she's showing up like double eye patch and like how does Lady Gaga's character fit into this? And and all of a sudden there's like laser sword machetes. So as awful, not awful, but as misguided as this film was, it still makes me want to see a third one, even though it's probably not going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be diminishing returns, I think. But I know myself too well to know that I'm, you know, I'm going to be watching that movie, however bad I expect it to be and however bad it ultimately is. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, I love Moonraker. Like, absolutely (laughs) love Moonraker. So (laughs) I'm already on board for this, for Machete to go into space. If James Bond can do it, so can Machete. What what is it about Moonraker that you like so much? It's just so it's so ludicrous. <laughs> it is so implausible for any of that to happen. And then you have this really crazy henchman jaws that they barely get any good use out of. And there's like this bizarre love story w- with him for some reason. <laughs> like there's just so many things where I'm like, how the hell did this get made? Like there's no way that this is a James Bond movie. Well, Moonraker's got a really bad rap, but I actually find it quite watchable, not necessarily for some of the things that you mentioned. I do like the idea of James Bond in space because it, you know, has never been done before. There's kind of obviously been scenes in space, but we've never put James Bond actually into space. So this is yeah, probably it hasn't the, been done since. <laughs> and it hasn't been done since. And I'm, I'm willing to wager we're never going to see it again. But I really like the villain in Moonraker. Like Drax has got some, he's very, very like droll. He's got some fantastic one-liners in it. And I, I kind of think, uh, it's got a little bit of a bum rap, this film, but it's, I, for me, there are worse James Bonds in the, in the series. So I'm, I'm happy to, to hear there's some other people out there who kind of got some appreciation for Moonraker. Oh, I appreciate it. I just appreciate the absurdity and its ludicrousness. Well, we better not get, uh, too far off the, uh, off the track. So, uh, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the exploding helicopter action. Hey guys, this is JD from the Incession Film Podcast. Every week on our show, you can join my co-host Brendan and I as we review the latest films that's out in theaters. It also inspires us to discuss a top three list of some sort, and we have a lot of other fun movie discussions as well. It's always a blast. And we also have a show on Fridays called our Extra Film Podcast. This is a show that gives us the space to talk about the latest indies and art films and other classics that we normally just don't get to talk about on our main show. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and more. In fact, you can just see everything about us, including our social medias at InsessionFilm.com. So join us every week. We'd absolutely love to have you. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action. After kidnapping Mendez, the Mexican revolutionary holding the USA to ransom, 
Trejo tries to make his escape in a chopper, but is pursued by machine gun firing goons in a speedboat. Simply flying away would be too straightforward for this film, so Trejo leaps from the helicopter into the speedboat and starts doffing up the henchmen. With the pilotless chopper still weaving about in the sky, the pockmarked pensioner grabs hold of a harpoon gun that's handily lying around. He fires a bolt with a line attached that hooks onto the helicopter, attaching the rod to the troublesome villain. Trejo triggers the spring-loaded reel, causing him to be violently whizzed into the side of the chopper which, of course, explodes. Nick, what did you make of the chopper fireball action here? I thought it was really cool. It's been a very long time since we've seen a helicopter explosion, not just via a harpoon gun, but from a harpoon gun then launches a person into the helicopter. What's confusing about it a little bit, though, is I don't know how a human body can cause a helicopter to explode. I would assume it would just get chopped up in the rotors, but I guess there's something else at play here. Well... If there is something else at play, I don't know what it is. Uh, Like you, I was bemused why that henchman caused that helicopter to explode. Naturally, I was glad to see it combust in the way that it did. And you were saying it's been a long time since we've seen a helicopter downed with a harpoon gun. I'm not sure we've ever seen it before, and certainly not with a a human body attached to the reel. So uh, I thought that this was, you know, this is this is kind of like one of the reasons why I I get out of bed and and podcast about exploding (laughs) helicopters, because... This was, you know, something you've never seen before. And probably you're not going to see it again. I can't think there are too many other uh, films out there with a desperate need to uh, blow up a helicopter with a fishing reel. And most of the time it would be like another speedboat or another aquatic vessel if you have a harpoon gun. Because rarely are you going to use a harpoon gun on land where most helicopters are. And along with the exploding helicopter, there's also quite a lot of cool uses of helicopters as well in this film. So we get to see Machete dispatch a whole bunch of uh, henchmen by kind of attaching himself through some sort of, I don't know, what would you call that device he attaches himself to the blades of the helicopter with? I don't know. It's creative, though. I've never seen anything like it. And at first, I was really caught off guard. I was like, is he... (laughs) Is he hanging from a rotor, cutting people's heads <laughs> off right now? Like, that can't be. I had to rewind it. I'm like, there's no way that's happening. But no, it, it was happening. Yeah, because he basically attaches, uh, Machete basically attaches himself to the rotor blades of this helicopter as they're spinning round. And he just sort of dangles out his machete and just lets the rotor blades whiz him round so that he can decapitate all of these henchmen in, uh, in one fell swoop of bladed violence. And that's something, again, that we've never seen and probably will never see again. There's also another scene earlier in the film which uh, I quite enjoyed where Danny Trejo grabs the intestines of another henchman, tosses them up into the uh, rotor blades of a helicopter, which I kind of assuming they get tangled up there because then this henchman just suddenly whizzes up into the rotor blades and is uh, is chopped up into uh, different pieces. So uh, there's a a warning to uh, everybody there. Make sure that you don't let your intestines get tangled up in the rotor blades of a helicopter yeah keep your belt buckled tight okay well i think that just about wraps things up for this show uh, nick do you want to uh, pimp out the stuff that you do on the internet absolutely uh you can check out myself as well as other members of the collective known as french toast sunday over on french uh robert zerby uh, has created or started a posting about different obsessions in film he had a really good one about disney so check that out our podcast comes out i'm pretty sure it's every monday used to be fridays now we've switched over to mondays depending on when this drops our most recent episode will have been about high school dances in film uh had a lot of fun 
recording that one with the gang. Also, check out the podcast, the French Toast Sunday podcast, and a newish one called Sorry in Advance, where Jess and Lindsay kind of branch off, do their own thing, and talk about the Star Wars franchise, because they've never seen it before. So they watch all the films for the first time, and they kind of give their thoughts and opinions. Some of it, it's a little eye-rolly for a Star Wars fan like myself, but other moments are really <laughs> funny that I would have never thought of before. So kudos to them. What's exciting is this is just like the first season of Sorry in Advance. They're going to come back and do other franchises that they haven't seen. There's talks of doing Harry Potter, but we'll see what happens. Okay, well, go and check that out. And then after you've done that, go and check out the Exploding Helicopter website. We've got a review of uh, Machete Kills uh, up there on the site already. If there's uh, another film that you'd like us to cover on a future show, then send me a message on Twitter or Facebook. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.